All right, so are there any questions that you guys have? So that's my question for you guys about heaven. You know, so there are things that we've talked about that some, some details, you know, we've, we've looked at about what heaven might look like. Um, but there's probably a lot that, you know, we don't know what it looks like. And last week I even brought a book. I don't know if anyone took me off on the offer, but had, uh, you know, just all these sections about things that we know now. What would it, what would it look like when it comes to the future? But what kind of questions do you guys still have? I'm not going to answer them, so I'm just curious on, although maybe, but like, what are things that you're still like, I'm still curious about? Oh, he, yeah, yeah, so, so, it's a hard one, because I, it would be chaos if I went to John, but John is, you know, John, and so, uh, all right, Zach. And then John, you're, you're next. So. <laughs> um, I just, the whole Ezekiel, Millennium, Temple thing, you, you all probably covered that before I came back, but uh, that's something I would love to more, know more information about, but I am content to wait until eternity. Yeah, me too. Me too. So, <laughs> Troy can fill you in. <laughs> it's kind of an inside joke. But anyway, so, uh, there's, there's, uh, there's some things that, uh, yeah, with that, Right, that even in our study was like, well, this is what it says, and this is what other things that we say, but how it all pulls together. So, um, anyway, but I agree. So there are some things about that. Uh, what does that look like? Or you can listen to the past messages, or we can talk in another time. So, but that's a good. What is all of that that Ezekiel talked about? On the Doctrine of Heaven, okay. Well, Randy Alcorn's book on heaven gets you to think about things you've never, you haven't really thought about. And the way that he goes about answering it sometimes is like a little bit, you know, this is what we see, so, and he, he does kind of like make sometimes like, I wouldn't say elite, but like he tries to make a connection in scripture and then fill in that gap. So that's a pretty, it's called Heaven, yeah, by Randy Alcorn. And he's got different versions of it. And he's got one for kids, and you're like, that's pretty good, too, you know, because I think in some sense we're kind of like kids when we're thinking about, you know, this subject. Um, so wherever you're at. And then, yeah, I have, I don't know, I don't think I had the devotional, but, like, I had some sort of little pocket book that was, like, the quick version of those things. So but he does a good job. So. I think we, we tend to think of heaven as spiritual, which it is, but it's, it's physical too. It's we, we believe in the, the reincarnated body, the not reincarnated, recreated body, I should say. Body. Yeah. So. 
I think that was a, probably a big thing uh, that Randy Alcorn tries to do is like, will we eat? You know, will we, you know, like all the physical activity to kind of reinforce, yes, there is some of those things. So, and I have referenced, you know, in a couple places, uh, a paper I wrote on the intermediate state. There's all these topics. And so it was like, before, you know, we are glorified, what does that look like? Will we have bodies? Will we have clothes? You know, so there are those logical gaps that you're just thinking, like, what would that look like? So, what would that ideal age be? Whatever you want. Whatever you want. So, I don't know. <laughs> 25. So. Yeah, no, I, yeah. So, I feel like I feel like there's nothing, nothing you could say. So, all you else content? <laughs> I just want to get there, and I'll take it as it comes. <clears throat> I have one other, and that is, you know, all of us. And there's a lot of different uh, denominations here on our different different theologies, and we're all. <laughs> you know that aha moment and that complete unity we're yeah. all actually because even in our church even in this room there's different opinions about so many different things just to be totally 100% unified in, in, in doctrine that we, you know what that would feel like yeah that would be really amazing um, even in my home I mean, my wife and I don't 100% agree my kids are starting to develop their own opinions and it's just like wow we are really split up <laughs> yeah, some of them want to like adopt you know mindsets that are completely counter to. It's like they're just trying it out. So it is interesting how different religious faiths have used heaven in their faith. For yeah, you, even outside. Yeah, even outside Christianity. Well, uh, or are you saying within? Even in professed Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been it's pretty dramatic the way it's been used as a model out there or a, a, I'll guarantee you a reward if, it, if you'll do this or do that or take this action or you know it's it's interesting the yeah. way it's been dangled out there for people. And and unfortunate. And so yeah. because because everything hasn't been spelled out, you know, if somebody comes along and spells something out, then it's like, oh well that's that's um I didn't use the word clearer doctrine, but, you know, you get in that legalistic mindset when somebody says, well, we have some grace within this area, but if you make it a rule or a law, then, you know, how does that play out? Um, certainly so. Well, so if we kind of did a recap of what we've, we've looked at, right, you know, John witnesses the judgment of all mankind and then death being swallowed up, and um, then he's taken to a mountain where he sees the... the um, bride of the Lamb, this new Jerusalem coming out of heaven, and he describes its dimensions of this 1,500-mile cube um, with a wall made of jasper whose foundations uh, were 12 different jewels, and we had the 12 different names of the apostles on the foundations, and then the gates to go into the city um, had a were, were made of a giant pearl 
uh, with an angel there at each gate. And at each gate was the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, even the city itself was described as kind of this gold, kind of clear gold. It like gleamed with brightness, kind of radiating outward. Um, And the city streets were of this clear gold. And inside there was no temple, but there was a throne. We also find out that there's no need for a light. There was just the radiance of God. Um, And uh, from the throne was this river. And on the sides of the river were these trees of life that bared fruit, these 12 different types of fruit, as John describes them as months, whether it's months as we know it or some other capacity. Um, It doesn't seem like there's a moon to to get full and not full, you know, uh, once a cycle. But we see that, and the leaves were there for the healing of the nations, and it's kind of like, a curiosity, what does that mean? And no more sin existed and there will be no sorrow. So as you kind of just think about that, hopefully like all those things sound like appealing, like, you know, inviting, like, you know, maybe even with wonder or curiosity to say, I wonder what this will look like. And I think that's, again, what the vision um, is, is pulling you in. But you see that when you see something, you know, about a structure. And so John turns from that physical structure then to roles that we see in heaven. So in Revelation 22, kind of cut off in the middle of this this first paragraph, uh, but we read, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. And through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Okay, so we saw that last time is where we kind of stopped, that that what do we see that is absent, that there is no temple. We talked about what that looked like. Um, there's no temple, but also what is said that will be absent there in verse three. <clears throat> What's that? Okay. There'll be no lamp or, or, or sun. Uh, true. But what does it say at the beginning of verse three? We'll get to that in just, just a bit. Okay. So nothing accursed, right? And so what was a part of like the temple that was needed when it comes to things that were accursed? Yeah. So a sacrifice and usually an atonement. So there's no need for that anymore. And we talked last week that instead of the the temple, what do we see? The throne. Okay. And so there's a throne and we talked about the throne last week. But now we're looking at another group of people that are there. We see that there are servants. So again, we still see there is a distinction between God and the Lamb and man. And these servants. So, um, what are the servants doing? Okay. So, the servants are worshiping. So, what is, what, you know, what would that, what would that look like? You know, that's, that's kind of the question that, you know, we wonder and think about. Early on in Revelation, in, in chapter 4, we see uh, that there were the elders um, that had their own thrones, and they threw their crowns 
uh, before the feet of the Lamb, and they worshipped, and the angels even with them, uh, and they they you know sang holy, 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 and that was what John saw right before all of the destruction takes place, and so this idea of being a servant, you know, in what way are people serving? So we see that angels are described as servants, um, and we even see uh, Adam, you know, working in the garden, and we'll look at that in just a second, and we we see that we will serve as well. And so um, when... When the servants are before the Lamb, what is the other thing that is noted about what they will uh, be able to see or do? They'll see His face. Okay. And so they couldn't see it before. And so there's a few verses, I mean, there's even several more than this, that kind of describe, you know, what this looks like, right? You know, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known, talking about Jesus. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And so why can't people see the Lord? Until this time, yeah, because of his holiness. And so we even see with, you know, Moses, right, when Moses, and we looked at this uh, way back when, um, when Moses uh, wanted to see the face of God, you know, God said, you can't see me, but you can turn your face towards this rock and I'll pass by, I'll let my glory pass by. And that even forever changed him. And so that's now done away with, right? Because the sinfulness of man is gone. And so now God allows himself to be seen. And I think even that aspect or the fact that like what we know about God, what we even think about Jesus, whether you have a a picture in your mind um, of a character or figure or someone you've seen in the past, probably like, you know, uh, a combination of several things when you think, of Jesus as a figure, like that will be, you know, that will now be reality. That will now be seen. I think just even being before the glory of God would be something, you know, to be able to worship, to be able to praise, and to be able to, you know, apprehend. It's like you can go into, you know, an art gallery and see people staring at um, paintings for sometimes hours, just kind of taking in the detail and the thought of the painter and all of this, how much uh, less a painting than God himself. And so we've got all of that that, we, that John kind of just, again, gives a little glimpse about what's going on uh, there before the throne of God in the New Jerusalem. He also says something that the, that the servants have written on their foreheads, um, uh, the name of the Lord. What's, what is um, that his name will be on their forehead? So what is that significance? 
if their name is written on their foreheads? Yeah. It's interesting that the, the opposite would be six six six. So those that aren't reading the mark of the beast, yeah. Yeah. Um, will they will they carry that into judgment? It seems likely not. But anyway, it's interesting to think about. The phylacteries, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, referencing Deuteronomy six, um, the you know, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, right? And so, the idea of of uh, having things you know um, around your wrists and written on your forehead, and so the idea again with Scripture being there close close by. And the Lord being close by, close at mind, and so they physically had something that they would have scripture, yeah, in a box that was like around a band on their head, yeah. And I think the high priest had a hat, and on the hat it said, Holy is the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> Some sort of box. So, as described as best we can. So, yeah, and so there's that idea again, you know, when you see someone, right? Even if you see the idea of a, of, a, of a ball cap or something like that, you know, somebody wearing a hat, you think, oh, you must be a fan of that team or that, that group. Um, I, grew up, uh, I grew up Catholic, and so around uh, Lent, they had this, I, this, this time of what was called Ash Wednesday. You guys seen people that participated in Ash Wednesday. How did you know that somebody went to church that day? Yeah, they have the sign of the cross on their forehead in ash. And so I went to a Catholic school that, you know, when I was young, and so we'd all have ashen foreheads. I think it's a sect of, yeah. Yeah. So, um, and so again, by seeing that, right, you understand who they are and who their allegiance is. Early on in Revelation, um, when Paul was writing to the church of, or sorry, not Paul, John was uh, was um, describing what the Lord said to the church at Philadelphia. He says, "I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, again, even interesting to see like this idea of a temple that John writes about, which will happen, but in the new Jerusalem there is no temple. But this idea of writing... The name of God is kind of, again, a reward, something to look out for, and even holding this idea of this crown, you know, do, um, 
uh, holding fast to be able to hold on to this crown. And so going back to Revelation, right, we have a repeat of something that John had mentioned earlier that something else that's absent, which is what? The light, right? And so he even goes into a little bit more detail, right? He says there is no, no night, there is no light uh, of lamp or of sun, right? But who will be their light? Yeah, the Lord their God. And so in Isaiah 60, 19, um, uh, Isaiah writes, The sun shall be no more uh, your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. So again, is that, was that Isaiah speaking um, literally as this is what is described here in the New Jerusalem? Is Isaiah speaking uh, figuratively that the Lord really should be your all in all and, and, and your desire? But we see that again. John keeps repeating this idea, right? You know, is this figurative? It seems more literal. There will be no lamp. There will be no night. Um, that the Lord will be that. That's just something uh, so kind of counter to us. I mean, it's such a wonder for John that he repeats this idea, um, you know, a second time. And so why do you think that is? Why do you think John, like, I don't know, wants to make it clear that there will be no light and that the Lord will be our light? So you get the message. <laughs> That's true that you get the message. It just seems like a detail that seems kind of odd um, to, to focus on. So, yeah, so one is like, yes, our whole, and that's, it's kind of interesting, you know, in, in for those that know, I teach, um, uh, high school and I had teach an engineering class and I wanted to start out by talking about, um, this idea of energy, um, because I end up jumping into a lot of specific things. But if you step back, uh, there's this idea of energy and everything that is useful for us, that is helpful for us, that you know, especially as engineers will kind of think about, has to do with kind of a transfer of energy. And if you step back, like where is like a huge part of all of the energy? Even like, you know, the, the ability to be here and to breathe and to sit here is because you ate something. And you ate something that might have eaten something that, that was, you know, sustained by the sun, right? And so just the energy from the sun that God spoke into existence at one point has just been powering most of what we do, right? Some of those things died and then turned into oil and we fuel our cars, right? Uh, some of those things we still use, you know, for other purposes. And so if you just kind of step back and think, like, that, that is a huge source of how our life is, is, um, revolves around. But not only the sun, because what if we just had the sun 24 hours a day? Have you, guys, have you guys been, I have not been, but have you guys been to a place where like, there was daylight for, I don't know, like 14 hours or more? So, <laughs> you guys live there, right? <laughs> okay, does Maine get like that or no? Are you guys not that far north? Then here? here, okay. But, uh, two o'clock in the morning, we're out salmon fishing, and it's like noon. Uh, 
Yeah, there was a guy I went to seminary with that was from Alaska, and he said there's certain times of the year that you could kind of sit on a mountain and you just, you never saw the sun go over the horizon. And it was like, that's just, <laughs> you know. Uh, and you hear like it takes an adjustment, if, especially for those that have traveled and if you've ever experienced jet lag, you know, our bodies revolve around the fact that the sun goes down and we need our sleep, right? And so our our lives revolve around that so if there is no sleep you think you know nap times are nice like what do i you know what what do i look forward to in heaven you know um but that's just again something that will be done so those are the questions that kind of come up right but time is irrelevant time is different time you know um again will be will be uh something that we experience differently and who knows we exist within time. Will we exist outside of time? Anyway, those are questions that we would ask in seminary. What does that look like? And how does that, you know? So, anyway, that's for another time. But, yeah. One other thing, we were just reading John 1 this week, and uh, he starts out by calling Jesus the light. Um, yeah, and I think the big contrast, right, is this light and darkness, and maybe John is so floored because, you know, the imagery that he spoke of before he had this revelation, like, is actually, you know, what he sees, like, you know, he, he repeats himself in the language he uses because it is himself and John, and so he will be the light, and there will be no darkness, and so beyond just the idea of a metaphor for sin, he is actually our light and how we um, are sustained, so, again, it kind of repeats that, but it lets us to kind of think about that. And what else does he say uh, that, you know, the people will do there in heaven? At the end of verse 5. Yeah. And so, there's this idea of, again, service, but there's another idea of reigning forever and ever. And so, not sure over what, you know, or who, I mean, it's usually what you think about a who, like who are we reigning over if we're all reigning, you know, we're reigning over ourselves. Like today, I will be, you know, the class leader. Uh, and so uh, today I'm going to be king of our domain. And so what does that look like? But I think it's more over a what it would be my, my thought, my inclination. And so in Genesis 2, if you go again way back to the beginning, Revelation again closes the loop in a lot of things about what was originally intended so in 215 the lord god took the man and put him in the garden of eden to work it and to keep it and the garden is this lush place that was described as such in the verses earlier and just past that and we get to verse 19 now out of the ground the lord god had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever the man called every living creature that was its name so he was given a job right um and so you know, it's not much, but I mean, someone's got to name these animals. Why? Why give them a name? I mean, why is that a job to do? Is it irrelevant? I mean, in a sense, right, he is to have stewardship over all of the earth. And so these animals are something that he's supposed to have stewardship over. And so in this essence, he's able to describe them as they. You know, God sets forth like what 
part of your job you will do um, going on into the future. And so we see in verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And then we kind of turn our attention to beyond like what that role was for him to something else. I have to think that we are going to be given jobs to do, tasks to do. I mean, is God going to do everything for us or is it something like we have, you know, things that we will, um, you know, take part in? I think, you know, it's hard, it's hard to think, you know, beyond that because everything that we experience now, jobs that we do now are for a purpose. And really, a lot of that is to sustain ourselves, um, just to be able to like eat and to survive. And so, uh, what is it going to look like when some of those things are not necessary? Will God have us be a part of things? I mean, again, is this like, you know, there's a description of eating. Is food just going to be prepared for us? Or are we a part of the preparation? Are we a part of the making? Are we part of the creating? As God created, will we continue to be creators there in heaven? So again, John doesn't fill in those details because he doesn't see those details or communicate those details. But I kind of talked about that a little bit, right? Um, I think sometimes when we talk about heaven or when you talk to people about heaven, you know, some people don't get excited about it. And it's part, part of it is like, one, it's kind of hard to picture, but I think it's also hard to picture like yourself there, right? It's again, if, if you say, hey, we're going to go to this new, uh, you know, amusement park kids, like, are they going to get excited? Maybe not, if they've, especially if they've never had like an idea of what goes on there. I think I've told the story, my cousin... Uh, spent the night over my house. I think we had family over. Maybe it was late, and I can't remember how old he was, but he was all sad about something, and he was, uh, you know, crying about wanting to go to to Disney World. And we were like, "What's Disney World?" <laughs> and so it was like, you know, like that thing had like been unearthed. My mom was probably like, "Oh no, the kids know now. Like, there's this thing called Disney World." Uh, and so it was like, "Wait a minute, you've been to this place?" And so, what is it? And there's like, you know, and so we had we had probably seen the cartoons and known about Mickey, but like the whole idea of an amusement park was just something like, I don't know. But he had been, and he had experienced it, and because he had been, and because he had experienced it, like he longed for it. And that's a hard part for us. Like we haven't been to heaven we haven't experienced heaven so that longing isn't there for us there's like this connection that we don't have plus again you know we talk to people that are like well what would i do i mean again we say like we're probably gonna have jobs but if you say like i don't know what i'm gonna do you know i don't have a purpose right there in heaven i think that's a huge part of you know the thing that's missing that we just we'll get to this in just a second but um even with this, as these things are described, there's this kind of this longing, like, well, where do I fit in? It says, it says, I'll serve and I'll reign, but how? And there's almost like a, don't worry, you will. I'll have something reserved for you. I, I have to trust that the Lord has something for us that we will feel perfectly right um, used by the Lord. Even if it was just worshiping Him, and our voices are finally like, you know, not cursed by sin and deformed vocal cords, right? Um, that we'll be able to worship Him fully, and we'll all have beautiful voices, or we want to have all beautiful ears. And so, whatever you sound like, it'll all sound great. I don't know what it'll be, but it'll be something great. And so, this idea—I kind of mentioned that last week—is when we have, 
you know, even within our church, this idea about community and belonging is something that is important. And um, if we don't have that, we feel like maybe we're even a burden uh, because we don't know how we fit in or where we belong. I think that's a, that's a huge thing that, I mean, I've been a part of churches for years, and it's that struggle of, like, how do people, you know, how, how do we help people feel like they're being used? Um, and so, I don't know, that's always a tension um, that's there. Because I think some, right, there's a sense of how, how do I fit in? What can I do? I want to serve, but how do I serve? In any case, that's a, that's a topic for another day. We scratch that surface with just some of these uh, verses here in Revelation. All right, on to verse 6. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, he has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of the book. Worship him. Okay, so this idea of being trustworthy is a similar word that we've seen and we've looked at in other studies, this idea of being faithful, right? And so when you are faithful, when he says these words are faithful, they are trustworthy, what, is, what are you to do with that? What does that mean? Okay. And not only that, believe them, right, as far as like assent, like cognitive assent, it's this idea of, again, this confidence that we want to place in these words, right? We may not know how to interpret them correctly. We may be definitely, as you know, Troy said, wrong on certain occasions, but the, the words themselves are trustworthy, that we can place our confidence in them. And not only can we place our confidence in them, but what does he also say about them? It's also important. They're trustworthy and they are true. Yeah. And so this, this is the truth. This is not made up just to comfort us, you know, as in just like, I don't know, everything's going, falling apart, but just focus on these words. They may not be true, but they'll at least get you through in life. I think that's what a lot of people say, right? Those that are not religious say about religion is a crutch. You know, it's just so if you, if it helps you get through life, if you can believe it and, you know, it, it, you feel like you're a better person, then all more power to you. But this is truth. And the truth part we'll see um, is critical. We've already seen it, but it will repeat it, the idea of why it's so important. This is going to take place at some point in our history. So have confidence in it, believe in it, and it is true. And so this phrase is a refrain from chapter 19 and chapter 21 that John has repeated it. This is trustworthy and true. And then he talks about the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then he talks about the new heavens and the new earth. This is trustworthy and true. So when we see this, though, we have a shift in what is you know, being described. And so we're wrapping up the book of Revelation. We're kind of done with the visions that he sees. And now, what is John wanting us to get? And so he gets to the purpose of the book of Revelation. So what is the purpose? What do we see there in the verse? Well, 
Yeah. So it's a vision. Again, John is doing his best to show us with words as best as he can describe what is going to take place. So that is, again, what the purpose is for this book. There's, you know, as a result of that, you have to make a decision based on that. And we'll get that to that in a second. But he reveals, again, why why revelation? Why do we have this? And so we can only conclude that some of the images, some of the things that were spoken of in the Old Testament, we see repetition and expansion, but that's the idea that the Lord wanted us to know a little bit more detail about what is to come. And then we see also this idea of the timing, right? The timing says what will soon take place. And so... Um, you know, this is uh, this has always kind of been something um, you know that has challenged me, especially um, as you talk to others about what that means. If some base uh, these words as more primary, because he said soon in other places, I'm sure Shane will get to it. We get to like Matthew 24 when he says this generation. What does that mean? Does that mean because we said these things, then everything must happen within a limited time frame? It's kind of the idea of like, what is soon and how soon is soon? You know, sometimes kids get on you and you're like, oh, we'll be doing it soon. And you're like, you've been saying that for weeks. And you're like, well, you know, um, your, your view of soon is different than my view of soon. But I do think it's something like, you know, on the flip side, I think sometimes, um, uh, those that take more of a futuristic view, which is what we would teach here, uh, kind of just put that to a side. Oh, well, it's just soon. But I think, again, like what is, what is the significance? How do we understand it in a way that is faithful? Because sometimes, you know, the natural way that we hear things um, are not how we would understand things. But there's often places in Scripture we just have to kind of reorient our way in understanding what that is. And so kind of the, the first thing, right, is that the idea of soon is more um, at hand, right? So like actually the this specific term is that it is quick or swiftly. So the Lord will come soon. We say that kind of as a timing. It's kind of the way in which the Lord come will be quick or swiftly. So um, and that's how that's how you can translate that specific word that is, is translated as soon. So how the Lord will come, meaning all of these events will be accomplished. And we have to say that there will nothing be left to be accomplished before the, the events of Revelation will begin. Meaning the next phase that we're going to experience when the Lord returns and when the Lord returns suddenly will be the end times, will be the final phase in God's plan. The church has been established, and so now it's up to the Lord to, um, again, consummate all of these things that we have happen. And so we'll get to a couple other phrases in just a second about how they all kind of pair up uh, in this. And so he says uh, that the people will keep the words of this prophecy of this book. So how does one keep the words of the prophecy of this book? Okay, so you can teach it. What else can you do? Read it. You can apply it. So, yeah. 
So, exactly. So this idea, again, of, of keeping these words is something, again, that we are not, again, just having mental assent, like, yeah, I think we're going to, that's going to happen, but that we will uh, take them seriously. These are the words of Christ, and they're not just words, they are, um, f- you know, actions and, and things that will, will be fulfilled. Um, I guess I don't have this in here, but Matthew twenty three thirty seven. you know, Jesus lamented uh, the prophets, and he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So again, Jesus was saying, like, there were prophets who came and spoke <laughs> what the Lord was going to do, and your forefathers didn't listen to them, even stoned them. And I lament even today, Jerusalem, because that's what you do. I'm here, Jesus was here in Jerusalem, and the Jews had him crucified. And so they didn't listen to the words of the prophets. They didn't keep the words of the prophets. John is saying, don't make that same mistake uh, that they did. And then he even says, like, this is, you know, testifies about himself. It's John who I am writing these words. I am the one who heard and saw these things. And when he heard and saw these things, we'll get to his reaction. But the fact that, you know, who is John, right? John was in Jesus's inner circle. John uh, was um, kind of set apart as someone significant at the end of the ministry of Jesus. He was part of the building of the early church. He was there with Peter. And now he's, you know, older, he's an elder, a leader of the church. And these are not like just the imaginings of somebody who, you know, is at the end of their time and hoping things. He's saying, no, I, John, you know me, and I heard these things and I saw these things. And even admits to how he reacted to these things. So how does he react? He fell at the feet of the angel. And not only fell at the feet of the angel, like he fell at the feet of the angel to worship him. And the angel has to kind of rebuke him. Like, I'm just one of you. I'm a servant just alongside one of you. And so he had the right response in falling to his feet in worship. He just worshiped the wrong thing. I mean, it's, again, understandable in a sense, right? That's our desire is that we would worship something. But the angel rebukes him and says, it's not me you need to worship. It's God. But the angel was just the one who brought him to the mountain to see the grandeur of what he would experience and see all this. He did it earlier. This is not the first time. He did it earlier at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Again, something has overtaken John. Probably the fulfillment of all of these things that has been in his heart. Again, you see the overtones of the things he's read in Ezekiel and uh, we'll see in Daniel. And they're just kind of overcoming him. And so the end result, though, is worship God. So what's our takeaway? The takeaway is this kind of grand picture of the new Jerusalem gives way to the realization that this vision is not just a vision, right? It will take place. It may be different, again, than how we imagine it. But as best as John can relay it on paper, it will happen nonetheless. And we're not just to read it and appreciate it and contemplate over it, but we are to respond. So don't be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. 
All right, let's finish these next couple verses, and then uh, we'll uh, finish the rest next week. And he said to me, verse 10, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So why does the angel not want John to seal up the prophecy? So he responds with this, you know, this, he says, because the time is near. And so again, like how, how do we understand that? Well, I think there's a little bit of a, a contrast to two places in Daniel that I think John is, you know, again, uh, reminded of when he's hearing the Lord say these things. In Daniel 8, verse 25, we read, by his coming, and so this is, the, this is a, um, somebody who is coming kind of in, in, in the vein of like an antichrist, now, by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. And without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken. But by no human hand, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So how did, how did Daniel respond when he heard, like, there's going to be this person who's going to deceive and, and bring with cunning and even fight the prince of princes? Yeah, he was sick. He was sick over it. Um, and so... Uh, that's how he responded. John responded with praise, right? Because he saw something that was, uh, again, desirous and something that the Lord conquering um, and, and what all that entailed. Daniel chapter 12 reads something similar. I know it's a lot of text, but uh, underline kind of the things that we see that is referred to in this passage. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since uh, there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. And then I said, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? 
Verse 9, he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate set up, that should be 12, 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. So we've got this kind of idea, right, that the, that the prophecy is shut up because the the next phase that God needed to do, or maybe even the next couple phases that God needed to do, um, needed to be accomplished. So between the time of Daniel to Jesus was only 600 years, and if you think Jesus to now is 2,000 years, so it's really been a longer span of time. But there were phases, things that needed to be accomplished, right? God needed to send His Son. He needed to be rejected by the Jews. He needed to be crucified. We needed to be saved, and we who need to be saved is not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. And so the, the age of the church is kind of where we're at. And so now that we're in the age of the church and John is writing after churches had been established, that's where he's saying that the time is near, right? This Again, this next phase is the only thing left to do and accomplish is the Lord to return. And he's ready to be deployed. It's just in God's timing, when all of this is happening. And so it's interesting, what's that? Yeah. How many times do you think in the past 2,000 years the time has been imminent? Or been perfected to be imminent? Well, yeah. By scholars or clergy or so forth? I don't think it's like wrong to do that, you know? I mean, I think we experienced like a worldwide event this you know, that looking back, we're like, oh, that really wasn't much. But like at the time, it's like, is it? But I think it's also like at the time, if you were one who was like, I'm selling everything and, you know, this is it, right? It's like, well, maybe not. Like, let's wait this through and see. But I think this kind of then apprehension or understanding, right? Like we've read about some of these things. What does it say in scripture? And are these things happening? And the result of these happening, like, what does, what does John say? Like, the time is at hand. He says something, repeats something from Daniel. We'll have to kind of go over it a little bit more in detail. But just kind of two things is like, he says, like, let the evildoers do evil and let the holy or the righteous be righteous. Um, it's kind of an interesting thought. You would think Jesus' time is at hand. He says, I'm bringing my recompense with me. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Like, what do you mean just keep doing what you're doing, you know? I think in a sense, it sounds like there is not an opportunity for repentance or even a call for evangelism. But I think really those words are more for us to understand like um, how, why people behave the way they do. So we'll kind of unpack that a little bit more. But yeah, there's been a lot of times going back to what you were saying where we see these things happening and we then infer like, well, this must be it. So when, when it's it, it's it, and we'll know because Jesus will come swiftly. And so, um, anyway, so we, we can, again, come back to some of this but, um, and, and finish it up next week. But, uh, you know, again, he's, he's echoing similar things that Daniel said as well 
about the righteous being righteous and the wicked being the wicked and what that looks like. And so we'll have a little bit of, of conversation on that. So we're almost done.